Welcome to Sweat the Details. This is Keith Davis, and I'm joined today with Jim Duncan and Jonathan Kaufman here at Nest. And we're visiting with Lance Barton, who is the director of the Habitat for Humanity, Stanton Augusta, Waynesboro area. Lance, welcome to the show. Thanks hey, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We were we were talking right before we started, um, and Habitat for Humanity is one of those great organizations that I think everybody is familiar with it at a certain level, and um, we're loving the opportunity to kind of get people to see the inside and the local nature of, of Habitat and how you really impact impact your direct community. And want to just kind of, if we can, just start with some of the kind of things that people think of Habitat and, and kind of misnomers and accuracies and kind of how you see your mission and Starting off with uh, that, you guys give away homes for free, right? Yeah. Tell us about tell us about the free homes. <laughs> oh, the That's free great, homes. Free <laughs> homes are fantastic. Um, no, y- you know it, it is amazing. One of the most well-known nonprofits in the world. One of the most misunderstood in the world, and y- and you start with the number one is uh, that we give away houses. We don't give away houses. In fact, uh, one of the reasons I'm in this organization is because if we gave away houses, I wouldn't be here is the partner families that put in hundreds of hours of sweat equity work, financial investment, and educational investment uh, before they ever step through the threshold of that house is amazing and, and something worth celebrating and something worth being behind. And, and then they still take on a mortgage and still buy the house from you. Exactly. They get an affordable mortgage. Um, so, no, there is absolutely nothing given away in Habitat. Yeah. So let's let's talk about you. You mentioned the term partner family, and and if we can just kind of start with that introduction to the habitat community and and how you guys select your partner families and what that really means and what your what your target audience is, if you will, your client base. The first thing to the first thing to really speak about is the term partner family. It is not a client. It is not anything but somebody partnering with the organization. How we select them, there's basically three different tiers. There's a financial qualification. We serve people from 30 to 80% of the AMI. In our community, the AMI for a family of four is about $55,000. What's AMI? AMI is average median income. And I'm uh, here to ask those questions of clarification. That's great because I will roll right over any kind of clarification. <laughs> um, so you, you've got your financial qualifier off the, the get-go. Uh, the second is your ability to afford a mortgage. Extremely important. We're not going to put you into a home that's going to get you into more trouble down the road. And the third, to me, is the most important, and that is the willingness to partner. This is not uh, a overnight mission. This is not a what we call a hit-and-run mission where you're involved for 24 hours. This is an 18- to 24-month-long individual um, mission with that family coming through the program. And and so you have to be committed to uh, to the hard work to get a home. So the, so the families that you guys select, um, once they're kind of accepted into the into the family, the partner family status, um, how many hours are they working? Are they working on their own homes? Are they working on other people's homes? What's the, is there a general practice? That's that? exactly it. They're working on their own home. They're working on other people's homes. Sometimes they'll work in the restore. Some of that, that Sweat equity is in education. Another component of this that I feel is even more important than working on their own home uh, because the education component of Habitat is getting them ready for home ownership at, at a level that most of us don't have the privilege of experiencing. So Lance, with, within your communities, what, how large of a population are you guys serving? What's the, the number of applicants you receive versus how many people you can serve? And I know you all... We'll, we'll get in a moment to kind of what the goals are for, 
for the, your specific habitat area of growing your your production levels, if you will. But what's what's the What's the need for your for your counties? So that's a really great question. There are thirteen hundred affiliates for Habitat for Humanity in the thirteen hundred affiliates for Habitat for Humanity in the United States, and they basically run thirteen hundred different ways because okay. of the local economy, uh, the local population. There are a lot of affiliates that have a hundred applications and they accept ten families. Ours is a little different. We actually don't have nearly as many applicants as we are able to build houses for. So we've really had to shift our strategic plan to reaching out to people to get more of them. Uh, is that just an awareness issue? What's, what's driving that? Some of it's an awareness issue. Actually, no, I would say primarily, yes, it is an awareness issue, and that falls on us to make people more aware of it. But the other thing, too, is there's not just misconceptions in what Habitat is, but there's huge misconceptions on who qualifies for Habitat. Right. You ask the person on the street, and they're going to tell you uh, it's single moms. They're going to tell you it's primarily African American. They'll tell you everything that, in reality, it seems not to be. And so one of the biggest hurdles we have is explaining to not only our community, but the people interested in the programs, we are serving the workforce population. So the people, so people who have jobs. I mean, these are all employed people. Everybody who, who comes to Habitat for Humanity it, has a job. If you don't have a job, we're the wrong program right. for you. But I'm talking about like the new teachers, right? Cops, firemen, you know, people who are not making bank at their job, they're they're just getting by, and uh, and Habitat is a program that can be there for them. When I say we serve. 30 to 80 percent of the AMI. Your school teachers and your police officers are going to be more in the 60 to 80 percent of the AMI, the higher end of things. Whereas you're you're much poorer, but you know, full-time employees, mm -hmm. more often than not, they're working two or three jobs are going to be in that lower end of the spectrum in the AMI. Well, it's funny, it, you know, just a slight tangent. I was talking to some folks the other day who, I mean, they're looking at you know, four or five hundred thousand dollar house. But they're looking at they have a new kid. And daycare is like thirteen, fifteen hundred bucks minimum. And they might have a second kid in two or three years. So I mean it's like you think about this stuff and those guys are you know, they're they're fine. But that's you know, that's a three thousand dollar nut you're looking at outside of the mortgage. So for these people who are working for, you know, police force, firefighters, teachers, if they have to do child care, that's a, usually a far greater percentage of their income. It is. And and it, child care is something that um, every aspect of the AMI, every level of, of, of wealth in this right. country is, is going to be impacted by. Let me give you a, a, a couple of numbers that really blew my mind. And this is new to me, this, this information. One in six households in the United States is, is paying more than 40% of their wages to live in a house. 18 million people are paying more than 50%. And when you say to live in a house, you're not referring just to the mortgage cost. Is that is that including utilities and like the actual like no, that's their real housing? Just, just the rent housing. or the mortgage. Just that's pity. Correct. Just principal interest tax insurance is 50%. or or rent. Exactly. Or rent. or rent. Yeah. And 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 that's a huge deal. And that that isn't a habitat issue. That's a housing crisis this country is is dealing with. Everybody knows the sweet spot in in expenses for your household is 25 to 30 percent. The majority of people um, that I deal with 
on a regular basis in my personal situation are dealing with much, much higher housing costs. Right. There's, Sorry, this, I'm, I'm, pa- there's I, this pause here of, of not even sure where to go because it's it's that is such a dramatic number. Mm-hmm. And the idea of being able the idea of being able to survive and make it each week and knowing what the 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 food budget has to be or how tight other things become. And I know there, there are numerous things I've heard of, of kind of what happens to an individual's mindset when you start focusing only on the essentials of life and you can't really look at planning and other pieces. This just gets, this gets really complicated for these families very quickly. So I came out of 15 years in food banking. One of, yeah. the, one of the things we used to always you talk are hungry. about is, right, you have to choose between medicine or food. You have to choose between taking care of your kids or food. You know, that was that battle. Right. Coming into Habitat, I'm realizing it's even more prevalent in households to have to ask that question. You know, how much is what I'm paying just to live interfering with my ability to take care of my kids? Right. To make sure that my kids have nutritious food. To have to make that decision is, is as, a, as a parent, yeah. is so, mind-blowing. Okay, so you, you have um, the, the number of one in six was, was where you were on, in terms of the, the families living at that level of, of housing debt um, or housing expense. So how does Habitat, how do you structure things in order to relieve them of that pressure, to get them down to a 25 to 30% range? How, what's the, kind of walk us through the fundamentals of that. Sure. And, and again, I have to start with saying that every affiliate does a little different. Um, ours is based, like every other affiliates, on our local economy. What we do at, at Stand Against Waynesboro is we start with that 30%. We take the person's income from where they are, when they come into the program, and, and we know our investment is going to be to get whatever the cost of that house is down to no more than 30%. I don't think that really answers your question. Well, I mean, but it's done, it's, it's done through donations, but it, there's still a mortgage loan so that, that's being... That you guys are pay- that you're you're setting up for individuals. So you're asking about the mechanics of of. I'm just the trying. I'm, I'm just trying to understand how you know, land has a real cost, whether it's habitat obtaining it or whether developers are selling to market rate. Now you you may be receiving some discounts on land because developers have an incentive to do that. But mm-hmm. there's there's still a land cost. There's still you still have to buy your materials. And I know you and I when we spoke earlier, you said you all do not. Uh, you go to tradesmen and you pay them for their, you know, general contractor time. Yes. Now you do have a lot of volunteer time that goes into the house as well, mm-hmm. but there is a very real hard cost to delivering a home, even for a habitat, and you need to be able to finance that and the 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 partner families when they move in and as you say cross that threshold, they're going to be taking on that responsibility for the debt. So how does how do you guys kind of target that? How do you who who funds the the shortfall of of what they can afford versus the real cost. Okay, so that's that's a great question. Let me let me put a a <clears throat> very real hypothetical out here. If it costs us $120,000 in hard costs to build a house that does not include labor, admin, all of those things. And the house appraises for 150,000. No matter what that house appraises for, we have to sell it at that appraised value. The way we make it affordable for the homeowner is we're taking into consideration how do we get down to 30% of the for their housing cost, and that becomes their first mortgage. So your typical Habitat family is paying on a first mortgage. That's the only one they're paying on. Then they have a second mortgage 
that is what we call a recapture or a silent second. That over time, as they're making this, this first mortgage payment, is slowly going down so that it dovetails at the end when the first mortgage is paid off, the second mortgage is paid off at the same time. Now, uh, if you don't think that's complicated, then you should have been in on the four meetings with bankers as we were trying to get estimates uh, on, uh, <laughs> on uh, structuring our mortgage for our restore, is that it's complicated. Right. It, it is a complicated model, and, um, but it's the only way that we have known to be able to make it affordable. The dirty little secret on Habitat for Humanity, and again, this is our affiliate, not necessarily every affiliate across the country, is we are by far the most expensive builder in our community because we have the education component, because we have the administrator, because, uh, because our business is not simply building that house, but building that family to be prepared to go work in that house. So a lot of times we are selling our houses for way under what uh, the cost. a typical business would do. And how do we make that happen? Yes, donations, grants, government incentives to, to uh, help get affordable housing built in the community. And without those things, it, we would never be able to do it. In, in your community, are you seeing any traction with getting, you know, sort of doing neighborhood development? Like, like putting together, you know, assembling X number of lots to build a more dense neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And how, and, you know, so that's the first part. And second part, are you seeing that density is part of the, uh, part of the solution? That's a really good question, and, I'm, and I, I'm really glad you asked it. So we are what's called a neighborhood revitalization organization, which means for the first 27 years of our existence, we would buy one lot, build one house, walk away. Now we will buy a block or two blocks, build multiple units, and, uh, and also provide critical home repairs for people who are outside of the, the Habitat Home Ownership Program. Right. So it's a much more holistic approach that we have found is very effective. But the question of density, the question of density is a really good one. A lot of funding these days is moving towards creating more density uh, because it's, it's much more affordable to build multiple units. Right. The problem that we have run into in our particular uh, service area is density works against us. It'll be in a neighborhood that is in transition, a neighborhood that's traditionally very low income, uh, whereas density can actually work against you by uh, putting too many people uh, of the same similar demographic right. in the same area. There's two different ways that we combat that. One, obviously, building single-family homes uh, is, is one of the most effective, but that also slows the uh, ability to meet the need. Mm -hmm. The other thing is mixed income. And I know that that Habitat, to be honest, is a little bit slow to coming around that is, is but to very strategic, strategically help to create a community that not only has, obviously, racial diversity, but even more important, financial diversity. It doesn't mean that we start serving people who don't need Habitat for Humanity, but we start very strategically building up that density made up of people from 30 to 40% of the AMI, 50 to 60, 60 to 80. So that puts you more in the, the role of a developer. It puts you in a role of a developer, but almost you would call a social developer. And I know that's a bit of a haughty term, even though 
you know, I have heard it before. Right. It's not just a matter of building a house. It's, it's a matter of building communities. So right. how, do you, how do you combat the, in, in, our, in the Charlottesville market, and I, I presume it's in most markets, that if you hear developer, mm-hmm. a lot of people hear that as a, with a negative, very negative connotation of they're a developer, they're coming in here to, to ruin our community by building a bunch of houses we don't want. Mm-hmm. But if you're a social developer, how do you combat that, you know, that perception? Social developer has to start with one thing, and if you don't start with this one thing, you're, you're done. You're okay. never going to make it. And that is to go into the area where you're serving and ask their opinion first. And that's exactly what we've done in, in Stanton is we've gone into the neighborhood. We gave some preliminary plans, and, and we said you know, straight out, what do you want to see in your community? Right. We're going to invest 2 $3 million within two blocks of your house. Yes, this is going to affect your tax base. Yes, it's going to affect the value of your house. This, this is going to have an impact on you. What Make the community itself a part of the planning commission. Right. St- Charlottesville has done it brilliantly. Stanton has not done it brilliantly in years past, and it's something that we, we've been slow to learn. And, and to be perfectly honest, uh, we have stolen a lot of these great ideas from your Charlottesville affiliate. Good. We like hearing our good ideas are, are passing. Don't take the bad ones. So, so along those lines, you know, how, uh, you know, we're in small towns, right? Charlottesville, Stanton, Augusta County, relatively small towns. What are you doing as a, as a, as a, um, as a habitat organization to learn what's working in other locations? Is there a network among these 1300 habitats across the country that you're learning from and, and, or is it, is it more regionalized or localized? It's a little more regionalized because we uh, because we're going to have much more in common with our regional partners economically than than we would with say you know affiliates in Ohio or Illinois who are dealing with their own their own particular issues. There isn't as much networking as I'd like to see, and and one of the things I'm really proud of is Habitat International is making that networking much more an intentional part of of their strategic plan going forward. Because, um, I, I mean, that's where it comes from. But, but to, be, to be really blunt, and, and this is something Habitat International uh, keyed into uh, several years ago, is we are in the real estate business. We are in the retail business. We're in the education business. The right partners for us have to, ha- have to be a good mix of other people in that business and not necessarily exclusive to nonprofit leadership or Habitat International or Habitat for Humanity leadership is that in my affiliate, I'm looking to learn more from realtors, from developers to fit into the business plan that drives our markets. Because when when a nonprofit organization works outside of that, I can give you a million examples of how it went wrong. In Stanton, we built a neighborhood that was entirely people at 30 to 50% of the AMI without a robust homeowner education program. 15, 20 years later, we're going back and having to upgrade, you know, reinforce the education. We're going back and having to, to uh, for lack of a better term, fix the best of intentions. So you beat me to my uh, one of my my follow up questions was in in your 
mind, what is the role of a realtor or a developer in the Habitat vision? So in, in years past, the role of the realtor has been to make us aware of real estate. You're inside that business. Land is very difficult to come by. Now the role of the realtor, especially Nest and, and your type of business model, is when the way I perceive you guys is you're as much into community building as you are into real estate. Okay. And, and that is the business that we are just getting to know how to get into. And, and the way a realtor can help Habitat for Humanity now is not simply to be that go-to for how do we get land, but quite frankly, how do we present ourselves as an organization in a way that people are more accustomed to being communicated to? When I think of the value of Nest to Stanton Augusta Waynesboro, it's, it could be simple things like real estate signs, plans of the inside of the house, I mean, those kind of very typical uh, business practices you guys do every day is completely foreign to most of us. And, and that is a huge step for us. Habitat for Humanity is the largest nonprofit brand in the United States, no question about it. But it's a sliver in the market of, of actual real estate and how people communicate when it comes to this is going to be your home. That's one of the places where we have a lot to learn. So let me ask you, you know, you and I had spoken a while ago about um, donations, funding of, of the firm, and we had we had talked about kind of that push that we don't hear quite as much right now, um, but certainly in past years we've, we've heard lots of check to see what percentage of the dollars you spend or that you donate to a nonprofit goes into the program funding versus administrative costs and other things. And I'd love to just get you to explain kind of your thought on maybe that's not always the right you know, you shouldn't be that microscopic in terms of, of you know, looking at it, how we how this actually becomes a self-funding question, if you, if you don't mind. It, now, and, and it, exactly. It, it was not that long ago, nonprofit voice started getting out there saying, look, you guys are trying to get us to be 10% to administrative cost or 15%, you know, to that it was a badge of honor to say that 90, 90% of your donation goes to affordable housing. If you look at us as the business that we are, that would be an absolute failure to not invest in the things so desperately needed to make it work well. In our case, education, our administration, our ability to, to develop funds, our, de our ability to develop properties. We, as a nonprofit, we're often looked at very separately from your for-profit business when it comes to, to donations is is it's no longer really healthy to think in terms of oh they nine nine cents nine out of ten cents went to program as somebody in my position the first thing i'm thinking is they're not really taking care of the people who are making this happen well and, and if you look at any for-profit business that's trying to grow mm -hmm. it's you know we're not saying oh we've you know x profit margin it's almost every business is looking at how much can we take this year and reinvest in the business for next year's growth? That it's there's if there is any excess money, it's it's put back into what is the best use of this funds for the enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. What is and I th and I think the same thing is true of Habitat. When you look at when a when a partner family sells and that second mortgage gets paid off, and if there's any money, it can be reinvested in other families. That entire yes. piece just becomes a continual reinvestment in the community and not a one-time grant. 
Exactly. And that's and that's part of the the learning curve that nonprofits have is 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 to realize that's a component that we see in the real business world that we need to to put into ours. For example, for 27 years we built one house a year. Now we're building five houses a year. It doesn't take a lot of thought to figure out that cash flow is going to be a great issue. <laughs> we do need to invest in the coffers of this organization and and we do need to be responsible with that investment. It doesn't make sense for for a nonprofit to have extraordinary reserves. It makes sense for a nonprofit to have very ethical, very well thought out reserves to to protect themselves, but to always be reinvesting in, in their uh, in their mission. When you're building five houses, all of a sudden you're dealing with five hundred and fifty six hundred thousand dollars cash flow. That's cash flow we're not accustomed to having on hand. We have to change the way we do business. Before we close, I just want to throw out one of the one of my great joys in in real estate was working with a buyer client who was buying their first house. Um, they were buying in the city of Charlottesville. They were it was a, a med school student and a teacher who were buying this property. And what I loved about it was that the property we were buying, when we when we actually submitted the offer, got the contract back, it had a new addenda on it that said that the contract had to be approved by Habitat for Humanity because the family that lived in the house was a Habitat partner family who had purchased it some 20 years before and had, had helped build it. Um, and that family, we learned through the process, was, well, part of it was that they were actually taking all of the landscaping out, which we thought was a little bit odd to lose during the sale, and most buyers would find that to be a bit odd, except the individual family who was who was selling this house he was a landscaper, and he had built his business um, in Charlottesville doing landscaping for new construction and other pieces. And what they were able to do is over the 20 years that they were in this house, they had built up a, an equity base in the home. They were able to sell that property, move to Greene County, where they actually were able to obtain enough land. He was relocating all of his plants and was going to be building out a nursery side to his business. And all of that was made possible because he had been an immigrant who had had the opportunity to go into Habitat Story and become part of that life. And this this house became, this equity became his opportunity to provide something that was generationally beneficial for his family. And it was just an amazing thing that that this purchase that we were making was ma- was giving that that family an opportunity to take the next step and build an even stronger business for themselves. And well, I just love that. Well, I, I wanted to, before Jonathan asked his, his last question, Keith was telling me a story, and, and I didn't catch all of it, about one of the more recent uh, families that you worked with, uh, like worked at uh, college or something like that. Yeah, um, Mary Baldwin. Will you tell me about that? Because or because I didn't I didn't catch all of it when he was telling me the story. Let me get back to that in a second, okay. because that's a that's a great question. I'd like to talk about it. You know what? That is success. One of the things that burned me out about working in food banks, and you have to understand, I will always be indebted to food banks because I started as a client who needed food. And that was the turning point in my life, that the people who happened to be handing that food out decided to invest in me, decided to find the leadership qualities in me that I didn't realize I had. So this is not disrespectful to to food banks, but the fact of the matter is, is I just got tired of not knowing what happened. The beauty of Habitat is exactly in what you described. We have the ability not only to create safe, affordable housing, we also have the ability to help a family create a platform on which they can build their lives. And I, my absolute favorite times in Habitat are when they don't need us. <clears throat> Just last week, homeowner came to me 
and, and brought her daughter, and her daughter bought her own house. She didn't need Habitat. And that is absolutely brilliant. And that is exactly why I work in this kind of nonprofit, is I want to see people graduate. I want to see lives change. I want kids to grow up in houses and think that's normal. Right. Because that is breaking the poverty cycle. And to your point about what happened is we had a speaker at an event, and they talked about their experience, and it was brilliant. It was great. They got a standing ovation. But what I did get from some members of the audience was these people have a master's degree. They don't deserve a Habitat house. And, and if I'm, unless I'm mistaken about what, what question you were asking, Here's, here's one of the things I'm finding is another uh, misunderstanding about Habitat is who we serve. Right. We, in our minds, will pick who we think deserves a Habitat house. And the reality is, is that a, a lot of times it's not exactly who you expect. When I share with people that I'm a recovering heroin addict and started at a food pantry and that that's where my life changed, the, the typical response is, no way. Right. But you just never know. You know, and 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 it and one of the biggest failures we can have in in human interaction, let alone nonprofit work, is essentially to to try to decide who does and doesn't deserve. Well, and Lance, I was I was at your gala. I heard this family speak about their experience and and what they went through to build that house. And again, you know, just to point out what may what listeners may have kind of missed. One of the members worked at, at a local university. Mm-hmm. The other was was self-employed, had a had a full consulting business and dance studio and and other pieces. And yet, you know, you you were saying that donors were saying this wasn't the type of family we should be helping. But I think what's amazing to me is that you can have two people with advanced degrees, with children, with their entire life seems to be stable in terms of the employment, in terms of their future, and yet they are still a family who is in that that level of, of income that does need help getting to affordable housing. That's the American story. And the story. story that he told of his child and what what had changed for them on a daily basis by being able to provide a roof that they knew would be theirs for 5, 10, 15 years to come, it was it was amazing. I, th- I thought it was one of, I mean, we, we go to a lot of, of fundraisers for housing-type initiatives, he was one of the most well-spoken people, and I and I walked up to him in the in the hallway afterwards, and then thanked him for sharing with it because it it really he was amazing and yeah. um, a fabulous story and a and a fabulous testament to what you're doing right now in in the valley and um, it was it, but it is you know it's a reminder that it's not a poverty piece it's just housing is not affordable in most of our communities. One of the one of the biggest misconceptions, along with we give away free houses, is that we are a solution to homelessness. And we aren't. That that isn't what we do. In order to qualify for Habitat for Humanity, you have to have a job. You have to have some consistency in that job. You have to be able to afford an affordable mortgage. Right. We are reaching those people who are really having difficulty getting a mortgage uh, on the market that most of us are accustomed to working in. So, Lance, I love the passion that you have for Habitat, and I think you know one of the one of the biggest pieces that stands out for me is that as an organization you're trying you're striving to create a tribe around habitat 
but striving to create a tribe that ultimately doesn't need you anymore. And that's kind of juxtaposed to most organizations that are trying to create a tribe that they need to be part of this organization forever. But you're creating this tribe that it's not a one or two year plan. It's like you said, a five, 10, 15, 20 plus year plan that ultimately they don't need, they don't need you anymore. Um, and that's, I think that's so just exciting. And, and uh, we, we just, you know, appreciate everything that you're doing just for our, for our community. Thank you. And, and, and that is the greatest things when somebody doesn't need habitat, especially when it's a child of somebody who grew up in a Habitat home. Elzina, city council member in Waynesboro, grew up in a Habitat home. She doesn't need Habitat. That to us is the greatest thank you. So as you wake up every day um, and think through and kind of put your plan together, and I know this is just something that happens every day, but not just something that happens every day, but something that you're, that you're working on constantly, What's the one detail that you're sweating? What's the one thing that you're really thinking about for the future of, of Habitat that's going to help? I guess the thing that keeps me up at night the most is it's very easy for me to look back on the work of 15, 20 years ago and say, good Lord, why did they do it that way? My hope is that we are thinking this through enough. We're taking this seriously enough. We're putting the ego aside and considering every single individual person who goes into that house or that neighborhood and saying, are we doing everything we can now to minimize what they have to do 15, 20 years down the road? You know, are we taking the individual seriously enough? Is dignity the question we ask ourselves? Is respect the question we're asking ourselves as we go along this way? Because when you can answer those first two questions, most of everything else really falls into place. That's great. Setting people up for success in the future is uh, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's a amazing. noble cause. Yeah, noble cause. Amazing what you're doing. So, thanks for being here. We really appreciate your time, Lance. Thank you so much. This was amazing, Lance. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much.